The science of epidemiology looks into the incidence and distribution of diseases. Epidemiology and epidemiologists, we're all about patterns. Mostly we're looking for patterns among populations, across places, and over time. And right now, epidemiologists are tracking cases of and answers for COVID-19. I feel like COVID-19 is the most challenging disease that we've studied, and we are learning every day, but there's still a lot of uncertainty. Discover the epidemiology of COVID-19, including definitions for terms you hear related to the coronavirus. We've created a website with information that a communication team and scientists work on to provide definitions in a way that we hope is understandable. That's all inside this edition of CTSI Discovery Radio. Welcome to CTSI Discovery Radio. I'm your host, Brian Belmer. CTSI Discovery Radio is brought to you by the Clinical and Translational Science Institute of Southeast Wisconsin. The CTSI is a consortium of researchers, doctors, scientists, and others representing eight institutions, including the Medical College of Wisconsin, Milwaukee School of Engineering, Marquette University, the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee, Children's Wisconsin, Freighter Hospital, Versity Blood Center of Wisconsin, and the Zablocki VA Medical Center. The CTSI works collaboratively across all of our member institutions. Our mission is advancing health through research and discovery. Epidemiology is the branch of healthcare that focuses on the incidence, distribution, and, hopefully, the control of the spread of diseases and other factors that threaten our health. At a time like this, during a worldwide pandemic, epidemiologists are working hard to collect data, data that will eventually lead to evidence-based discoveries in controlling the spread of the COVID-19 coronavirus. Let's learn more by turning to an epidemiology expert. Dr. Kirsten Beyer is an associate professor in the Institute for Health and Equity, Division of Epidemiology, and co-director of the Global Health Pathway at the Medical College of Wisconsin. She shares what her work in the field involves. Epidemiology and epidemiologists, we're all about patterns. Mostly we're looking for patterns among populations, across places, and over time. And that could be for a particular disease, for a disease outcome such as hospitalization or death, or even for positive things like health-seeking behavior, healthcare-seeking behavior. And in looking at these patterns within populations, she says... We learn the most from looking at the intersections of these things. For example, for which population, where and when is the risk highest. And that offers us the most potential for targeting interventions based on that information. At the root of healthcare and medical research, epidemiology is critically important especially during a global pandemic. Epidemiology is always critically important, but I think we feel it most at times like this. It provides the information we need to make difficult decisions quickly. Epidemiologic surveillance, systematically collecting, managing, analyzing, and interpreting data is actually an essential public health function that goes on all the time. But especially during a time like this, we need to be able to rely on the best information we have at hand to make difficult decisions that affect people's lives. What then are the epidemiological goals in surveilling COVID-19 in our community and across our nation? I would say there are 
evolving, you know, as we learn new things about the disease. But basically, we're trying to keep tabs on the patterns and the changes in key measures. So things like numbers of cases, rates of cases, hospitalizations and deaths, the number of tests, the percent of positive tests, and then the patterns of all of these measures through maps, for example, over time, looking at trends, and then over population groups, looking at things like age, sex, race, ethnicity, socioeconomic status. So we're basically looking to see what's going on in terms of the patterns and the trends so we can see new developments in the disease. As far as how diseases and health outcomes are measured in communities and populations? Measures often depend very closely on the type of disease it is, and COVID-19 is an infectious disease. For COVID-19, we have a test, so testing is especially important. And the surveillance system that we use to track COVID-19 is based on the test, right? The test is the catalyzing incident, and then everything else follows from the test, whether that test was positive or negative, whether the person had symptoms, what their outcomes were. And, of course, there's technology involved in capturing all of the critical data. The background infrastructure, the data systems, the computer systems, the data integrity checks, all of these things are important as we try to measure and use that data. So those systems allow us to diverse teams across the state to download and analyze data as quickly as possible. It's a combination of the testing information, the interviews that are conducted by local public health authorities, and then clinical data so that we can get a fuller picture of what's going on. As Dr. Beyer mentions, epidemiologists typically work as part of multidisciplinary teams, making epidemiology, in essence, a team sport. Science is a team sport, and for sure epidemiologists work in teams. I'm a big believer in team science and the need to see things from multiple perspectives in order to get the right answer. And actually, we're currently working as the Milwaukee County COVID-19 Epidemiology Intel team, comprised of individuals from local public health and academic agencies with varying job descriptions and backgrounds. And in addition, the Milwaukee County COVID-19 Epidemiology Intel team also has team members from another key sector the community itself. It's important to seek out and incorporate feedback from community leaders. Also, as challenges and new opportunities arise, there's a lot of data out there and the public is part of the team and helping us to really look at the information that we have and make it as strong as we can make it. But considering the team members' diverse backgrounds, COVID-19 still presents many challenges. I feel like COVID-19 is the most challenging disease that we've studied because it's an unknown. And we are learning every day things about it that give us new insight into the behavior of the pathogen, the impact of the disease, and then the efficacy of various prevention and intervention strategies. But there's still a lot of uncertainty. There's more. It's also challenging because it's highly infectious, including when an individual is asymptomatic. COVID-19 moves and changes fast, and often things have already changed days before they show up in a data set, so we often have to play catch-up. Given the rapidly changing nature of COVID-19, how does Dr. Beyer characterize the data collected so far? The data that is most visible is the data that's gathered from local public health authorities that's based on the test. But overall, there's a wealth of data available. The thing about data, though, is that no data set is perfect, particularly in a fast-moving situation where the implications are of great magnitude, like the one we find ourselves in. There's often more information than there are people to enter it, check it, process it, and analyze it, and then interpret it and use it for policy change. We'll learn a lot more about this disease when we have the time and the ability to link multiple databases and look back in time to get a more complete picture of each individual's experience. So what are some of the key findings relative to COVID-19 discovered thus far in our community? Dr. Beyer says, first, there are subpopulations that are showing higher rates of infection. 
However, one population always has a higher rate of infection. Early on in Milwaukee County, we had very limited access to testing. We saw many, many infections among the black and African-American population. But at that time, only the most severe infections were captured. So it's very likely that the burden faced early on by the black community will never really fully be accounted for. Whereas with increased testing, we saw a new surge that was particularly among the working age Hispanic or Latinx population. And then following that, another wave occurred in July among younger people of multiple race and ethnicity groups. And this wave affected the suburbs of Milwaukee County more than the first couple of waves had. And even more recently, with the beginning of the new school year. Right now we are seeing the beginning of what looks like it's going to be the colleges and universities wave, and hopefully to a lesser extent a K-12 schools wave. Findings also show there are subpopulations suffering more serious effects of COVID-19. We know for certain that age is a big factor in terms of the severity of the disease. And we also know that comorbid conditions, so things like cardiovascular disease, diabetes, respiratory conditions, put people at a greater risk of severe outcomes. And because these comorbid conditions are themselves subject to disparities by race and socioeconomic status. We're also seeing more severe effects among some racial and ethnic groups. In Milwaukee County in specific, the black and African-American population saw the highest hospitalization and death rates as compared to any other racial or ethnic group. And this isn't something that we just see in Milwaukee County. This is something that we're seeing nationally today. Speaking of which... How do findings from our community compare overall to what's been discovered nationally? I think Wisconsin did a good job early on of trying to flatten the curve. Unfortunately, as things opened back up, we did see infection rates rise. One thing to note is that many of the deaths that occurred in Wisconsin occurred earlier in the epidemic. We have not seen a recent surge in hospitalizations and deaths like we saw early on. It's likely due to the fact that many of those getting the infection right now are younger people who are at less risk of severe outcomes. In all of her team's epidemiological research of COVID-19, are there any surprising findings of note? Earlier on in the epidemic, we were trying to do a lot of work with predictive modeling to see, you know, what would the trajectory of this disease be? And so there was a lot of uncertainty at that point. This disease can flare back up pretty quickly. But I think it is a bit surprising that despite efforts to suppress the disease, something like Fourth of July or Labor Day or colleges starting back up can generate a new wave of infection. How is the data being discovered on COVID-19 being used, for example, by public health officials? Local health departments are using that data to help guide their local partners, such as businesses and school districts, and to do so in as timely a way as possible. And public health professionals use the data that we get to make the most balanced and evidence-based recommendations to safeguard public health while also balancing the needs of the populations they serve. What about healthcare providers? Primarily, especially at the beginning, they were using it to monitor and predict usage of services. But I think now as things have moved on, it's also about being able to gauge characteristics of the patients they're going to seek so that they can be prepared to provide the most appropriate care for those populations. And policymakers. Data is essential in policymaking to make evidence-based policy decisions. Data can be an unbiased source of decision-making power. It doesn't always tell us what we want to hear, but if we are collecting it and analyzing it in rigorous ways, it can really help us to make policy changes that will safeguard the public health. But while data is critical, it does have its limits. Data is never clean or complete. That's the nature of the beast. Getting a good database is probably 80% of the work. 
For example, we weren't getting enough information on race and ethnicity in our databases. So we went back to recapture that because it's such an important thing to take stock of. But also our team spends time to examine the data, to identify any problems, to correct errors, to ask questions, and then to ensure that our products are based on the best information that we have. Of all that's been learned to date, Dr. Beyer has two things she wants us to understand. The first thing is that this disease attacks the most vulnerable among us, and it can result in very grave consequences. And that's not just death, but also long-term health problems. Even though you may not feel at risk, you're a potential carrier of the disease, and you have a responsibility to others to take precautions. And second, it appears from the evidence we've gained in the last six months, masks work. We need to be wearing masks and to be wearing them correctly, covering the mouth and the nose. Even though they may not block all of the virus, they are able to reduce the viral load that we receive. We may become infected only with no symptoms, fewer symptoms, and maybe developing immunity without suffering severe consequences. From all she's seen and learned about COVID-19, does Dr. Beyer feel positive about our community's progress in overcoming this pandemic? Well, I'm so proud of all the work that I have seen going on locally to fight this disease. But I have to say that, unfortunately, no, I'm not feeling positive about the direction we're taking. Being connected to a country as large, diverse and interconnected as the United States, I don't think a state-by-state strategy is going to work. I think it's a recipe for failure. Local and individual action, like that mask wearing, is so essential. But I do think we need a national strategy. But on the positive side... She's hopeful that the COVID-19 pandemic could have at least one silver lining. 2020 has been a really hard year, but there is a future after this. And I think that one of the most important things for making that future as healthy and safe as it can be is science. So I would love to see students pursuing scientific careers. That could be one of the maybe few great benefits of what has happened here. And for all of us, what do we need to know about the epidemiology of COVID-19. COVID-19 continues to unfold. What I know about it today is going to be dwarfed by what I know about it in a week or two. But what we know so far tells us that individual behaviors have a lot to do with transmission. Ordinary people are able to impact the course of this epidemic. And we're also responsible for doing that by doing things like wearing our masks, physical distancing, using sanitizer, and doing all of these things despite what we may personally prefer to do appear to be the keys to tackling this disease. These days, it seems we hear news about the COVID-19 coronavirus pandemic on a daily basis, often several times a day, and from a multitude of sources. And while we comprehend most of what we're hearing, let's face it, sometimes there are terms that we may or may not fully understand. So to better understand some of the terminology associated with COVID-19, we've enlisted the help of another expert. Dr. Laura Cassidy is Professor and Director, Division of Epidemiology and Research Director of the Institute for Health and Equity at the Medical College of Wisconsin. Today, she joins us to share definitions of COVID-19. Over the past several months, we've heard about the outbreak of COVID-19. As a beginning point, we asked Dr. Cassidy, what constitutes an outbreak? Well, an outbreak is when we have more cases of a disease than we would expect. So in the beginning of the pandemic, we didn't expect any cases of COVID-19. So if there are one or two, that's considered an outbreak. With something like the flu, we expect a certain number of cases, and we only consider it an outbreak if it exceeds that number that we expect. 
So while we might think an outbreak automatically means a lot of cases of a disease, that's not necessarily true. Right. It depends on the disease that we're talking about. Like one case of Ebola would be an outbreak because we don't expect to see any. Next, we hear about clusters. Are clusters and outbreaks the same thing? Not necessarily, but a cluster can become an outbreak. A cluster is when you expect to have some cases, like now we expect to have some COVID-19 cases, and they're clustered in a specific location. Maybe a family, one person gets sick and the whole family gets sick, that's a cluster, but it becomes an outbreak when the number gets higher than we expect. We also hear a lot about contact. But what exactly defines a contact? So the health department defines a contact with potential exposure anytime you're within six feet of somebody for more than 15 minutes and you find out they tested positive for COVID-19. So if we're in close proximity to somebody and then we find out they're positive, then we're considered a contact with a potential exposure. We could potentially have caught the virus from them. Which is why avoiding contact through social separation is so critical toward controlling the spread of the disease. If somebody has COVID-19 and they come into close contact with another person, that person could get it and come into contact with another five people, spread it to those five people who could then spread it to another 10. And people don't always know that they're a contact and sometimes people don't get any symptoms. And then if they go to an event where there's a lot of people, that person can spread it to a bunch of people. And with COVID-19, we do not have immunity, so everybody's vulnerable. Then should our focus be on avoiding contact or limiting contact to prevent becoming a contact for COVID-19? Well, a little bit of both. I mean, we can't avoid other people completely. Like with our family, we live with them. So we want to make sure all of our family members are being safe. And that's why wearing a mask is so important because the virus comes out of our nose and mouth and goes into people's nose, eyes and mouth through the air and also through objects they touch. So if you always have a mask on and stay 10 feet away, you won't be considered a close contact and you're less likely to get the disease. But is it realistic to always be socially distanced from others and wearing a mask? You know, we just have to manage it the best we can and avoid situations where there's large crowds, a lot of people interacting over a period of time, especially in a confined space. The next two words we hear a lot are isolation and quarantine. Dr. Cassidy says... Yeah, and I think this causes a lot of confusion using these two different terms, but we use them because when we talk about isolation, that is somebody who has tested positive for COVID-19 and we need to isolate them from others so they don't spread the virus. So that might be if you live alone, staying in your apartment, having your food delivered on the front porch and isolating for 10 days after your positive test. Because if you go out and interact with people, you could spread the disease. Compared to someone who's put into quarantine. Now, when we talk about quarantine, we're talking about separating those people who might have been exposed to keep them from spreading the disease. So that would be a person has COVID-19, they don't know it say Jane, has COVID-19, and she interacts with Bob. Then Jane finds out she's positive, and she says, okay, I have to go isolate now and stay away from other people. But Bob is considered a contact. He's potentially exposed. We don't know if Bob has it or not, but Bob should go home and self-quarantine until he gets the results of his COVID test to find out if he actually got the virus or not. But have people been isolating and quarantining as needed to effectively control the spread of COVID-19? In the 
beginning, most clusters and outbreaks we saw came from living situations where people lived too close, where they had close contact. And then when we shut down, the spread of the disease slowed. Now we're seeing the number of confirmed cases are rising in our younger population. So we've stopped the spread in nursing homes and other institutions, but people say 18 to 35, I would say they probably aren't practicing as safe a behaviors as people who feel that they're more at risk. How about contact tracing? What's that? If we go back to Jane and Bob, where Jane has COVID-19 and tests positive, and she's been around Bob, Bob's considered a contact because he was exposed, so he could potentially have caught the virus from her. Right. So then what happens? The health department is usually responsible for contact tracing. They would call Jane and interview her and say, who have you had a close contact with over the past so many days? And then they would contact Bob and say, someone you know has tested positive for COVID-19. We recommend you quarantine and get tested. Then identities are protected in contact tracing? They don't reveal the identity of the person who tested positive. Although quite often, if somebody tests positive, they call their friends and say, oh my gosh, we were all together the other day. I tested positive. But the formal contact tracing is usually conducted by the health department. And the sooner they find out somebody's positive and can contact trace, the faster we can stop it from spreading. And if the health department does call you in their contact tracing efforts, please take it seriously. Yes, they should be concerned and they should go out and get tested because we don't really know how each individual reacts to this virus. In general, we know severity increases with age. We know there are certain subsets of the population who suffer more, but there's cases where perfectly healthy individuals get it and don't survive. Or we are learning there are some longer-term side effects. Once you recover from the acute stage of illness, it could be quite serious. Another term related to COVID-19 that's in the news with increasing frequency, herd immunity. What it means is when enough of the people have built up immunity, we protect each other. Now, in order to reach herd immunity, we say we would like 70 to 80 percent of the population to be immune to COVID-19. That is a lot of people. That is going to take some time. So herd immunity, it's sort of a buffer. The disease stops at people who are immune. But in the absence of a vaccination to date, is it dangerous to rely on herd immunity for controlling COVID-19 at this point? In the United States, yes. We're a big country and we're not even sure the level of immunity you get if you do get sick. You know, there's some theories that a milder case might not build up as much immunity as a more severe case. And for how long do you have immunity? With vaccines, we can control the outcome. We can study them and make sure that when we give a vaccine, it is safe and that it will provide the immunity we need. And we don't know that if we let it happen randomly. It's just not worth the risk. Next, there are many terms that are used as indicators of the coronavirus pandemic. indicators to look at data and measure the impact of the virus on the community. So how many people are sick with the disease, how many new infections there are, how prepared we are to handle it. So we measure our capacity to handle it and the burden of the disease because we want to know how fast it's spreading or if we're controlling it. Dr. Cassidy provides definitions for some you're likely to hear, beginning with early indicators such as reproductive number. It's the number of people that every infected person infects. So if Jane infects Bob, and that's the only person she infects, then the reproductive number is one. If she infects two people, then it's two. So it's basically an estimate of how many people each infected person infects. 
So the goal is to get and keep that reproductive number as low as possible because... When we get it below one, that means that every person who has COVID is infecting less than one person. And we hovered around that for a while. We dipped below one, and now we're back up to about 1.5. So that is a red flag to us to say it's spreading faster. More people have the virus. Then there's the positivity rate. This is based solely on testing. Of everyone we test, how many test positive? So it's really a measure of who gets tested. And it's true, you're only positive if you get tested, but we also only know you're negative if you get tested. That's why we want our testing rates to be high. If we have enough people getting tested, then we also know that people are negative. And that's important to know. Trajectory. This is looking at trends, and we just want to see how the trends are going. So if you look at it over time, are more people getting the virus over time? Is it staying the same? Are they getting less? We really want the trajectory to go down. And the burden, or case rate. So this is important also because what the burden does is we look at it per size of the population. So per 1,000 Wisconsin residents, per 100,000. So we might say in Milwaukee, we have this many tested positive per thousand Latinx residents or per thousand Native American residents. In which case, if we look at the small number of Native Americans living in Milwaukee and the small number of test positive, the burden is higher than we actually knew when we separated out by the demographic distribution of the population. There are intermediate indicators as well. For example, hospital capacity. Hospital Association keeps track of, are there enough hospital beds empty so that if somebody gets sick, they have a bed? Do we have enough equipment? So there's a threshold for daily use, but then when something like an epidemic or pandemic like COVID hits, do we have the hospital space equipment and everything we need to care for these severely ill people? So that's what we're talking about when we're talking about hospital capacity. And there are lagging indicators of COVID-19, including, sadly, deaths. When we're looking at an epidemic or a pandemic, the first thing we do is see cases, but then over time, some of those cases may not survive. So there's a time between when people are exposed and when they get sick and when they die. And so that's why it's a lagging indicator. If we saw a lot of cases right now, we might expect that in a couple weeks, unfortunately, maybe some vulnerable people who catch the virus do not survive. Then, There are limiting indicators of COVID-19, including things such as testing capacity for the coronavirus. And that continues to be a limiting factor. Again, we weren't prepared. The countries that are doing best are the ones who were hit hard by SARS and recognized they had to be prepared if something like this came again. And the only way we can confirm somebody has it is to get a test. And we need people to get tested, but also need capacity to do the testing. So it's really hard to contain something if you don't truly know the magnitude. And turnaround time for test results. And that's huge because we need rapid results. If Bob has this potential exposure and he does get tested and he has to wait five days for the results, not everybody's going to self-quarantine the way they should. But if he finds out an hour later that he tests positive, then he can take care of himself better. Also, if he waits an hour and finds out he's negative, that gives you peace of mind. If you're interested in learning about these COVID-19 definitions and more... We've created a website with information that a communication team and scientists work on to provide definitions in a way that we hope is understandable. And there are other trusted resources available as well. 
Wisconsin Department of Health, Milwaukee Department of Health. There's always the WHO, CDC, and Hopkins websites, but there's a lot of misinformation out there, so please consider these trusted websites. Finally, epidemiologists are learning more about COVID-19 each day, but Dr. Cassidy wants all of us to know today... a major health crisis. Nobody's invulnerable to it. It takes all of us together to bring the rate down, to control the spread. And if we work together and just simply wear a mask, wash your hands, keep your distance, disinfect, avoid crowds, we can keep the rates down and we can function in a semi-normal way. We can do it. Yes, we can. And we can put the wraps on another edition of CTSI Discovery Radio. Our sincere thanks to today's guests, Dr. Kirsten Beyer and Dr. Laura Cassidy. I hope you've discovered something by listening to today's show, and I'm doubly hopeful that you'll join us again next time. CTSI Discovery Radio airs the third Friday of every month, so make an appointment on your calendar and join us for each episode. On behalf of the Clinical and Translational Science Institute of Southeast Wisconsin and all of our affiliate partners and members, I'm Brian Bellmer, wishing you happier, healthier days ahead. For more information about research or to listen to the podcast of this or any of our shows online and on demand, please visit our website at ctsi.mcw.edu. You'll also find it wherever you listen to your other favorite podcasts, including Amazon Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and more. CTSI Discovery Radio is written, produced, and hosted by Brian Bellmer in collaboration with WMSE Radio. The CTSI and this program are under the direction of Dr. Reza Shakir.